Uh, if you're here for Sunday school, you know, Bill Bider was teaching on heaven and talking a little bit about, uh, in that bigger context, uh, that sometimes you get a little bit of a taste of that when you're gathered in person with other saints on Sunday morning worshiping. And, and uh, while I'm thrilled for the folks that can join us online, I'd much rather be here in person. So it's great to worship together. Hey, too, let me just lend a voice to one of Bill's announcements. Ladies, hope that you'll join for the February 18th and 19th Women's Winter Conference. There's some great talks. I've heard parts of all of them. There's a lot of preparation. You'll have a great time of fellowship as well. So the benefits definitely will work for you beyond that weekend. Hope you can join in on that. You can sign up today or the next couple of weeks. Uh, by way of introduction, more to the point, uh, Genesis uh, starts not only the story of the world, of course, but you've got the worldwide flood in Genesis 6 through 9. That's my grandson, letting you know he's here. We're glad he's here. Uh, and at the end of the flood account, Genesis 9, uh, God commands the descendants of Noah. Listen to what he says. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So remember, the population of the earth is gone other than Noah and his family, his sons and their family. So the, the command there is, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So you're going to start at the ark, but you're going to go out, you're going to spread out over the earth, you're going to fill the earth. When you get to Genesis 10, it describes sort of called the table of the nations, and, and from Shem, Ham, and Japheth, it sort of tells you, and maybe your Bible has a study map, and it'll show you, this is where the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth spread out. But you get to chapter 11, and it's a little bit of a backtrack, because it tells you that that the descendants of Noah had a problem fulfilling that command. This is Genesis 11, 1 through 9, in part, uh, it says, as people, and listen to the plural, this is all plural, and this is not what God commanded them to do. As people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen, or we would say tar, for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. This was an effort for humanity to collectively refuse God and his directives to establish for themselves a city that would reflect their own desires and values. They would build a city by which they established their own name, their own identity, the city of man, as opposed to the city of God. Verse 5, and listen to the irony here. So in their minds, what they're building, this cosmopolitan city, the city of man, it's going to be great, it's going to be huge, and they're going to have a tower that's going to reach to the heavens. Now listen to the irony. Verse 5, the Lord, Yahweh, came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. So here's the irony. I'm one of the guys building. I look at it, it's magnificent, it's huge, it's colossal, it's great, it's fantastic, it reaches the heaven. God who lives in heaven says, I got to get down on my hands and knees to see what these guys are doing. Now God's omniscient, he doesn't actually, he occupies all space. But the thought is what you're doing is insignificant and I've got to come down from heaven. You think you're reaching there just to see what you're up to. He says, uh, come let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building a city. 
Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the, all the ground, all the earth. They weren't going to do it. God compelled them to at Babel. So he intervenes to cancel this effort at self-rule. Collectively, this was an effort at self-rule. So guys, since the fall of Adam and Eve, mankind is always bent on self-determination, autonomy. This means life as we see it, life as we see fit, myself as I see fit, etc. It's not about God, it's about me and my autonomy and life on my scale as I deem it right. Individually, we want to live life on our own terms for our own goals, our own pleasures and desires. Collectively, we're willing to join with other self-seekers in order to gain what we can't get as individuals. And that's pretty much the story of humanity through history. In the last couple of weeks, we started working through the book of Psalms. And if you remember, we said Psalm 1 and 2 form a very intentional introduction to the rest of the book. So in Psalm 1, on one hand, we saw the righteous. You remember how blessed, how happy, how prosperous, vital, successful is the man who avoids the wicked, plugs into the life-giving water of God's word. Blessed, happy, significant. In contrast, there was the wicked, and we said we fleshed that out a little bit to say wicked generally in our minds is wicked acts, things we do. We said, well, yeah, it comprises that, but also wicked is the state of existence of all those born of Adam and Eve. And unless until we come to saving faith in God's Messiah, we remain wicked as a state of being, not because we're doing wicked acts, because we're separated from God. And we've not accepted his coming back to relationship with him through his Savior. We're going to be in uh, Psalm 2 this morning, the second half of that introduction. And what you'll see in Psalm 2, so you got wickedness in Psalm 1, but in Psalm 2, wickedness is raised to this high-handed rejection and rebellion against God. And specifically, that high-handed rebellion and rejection of God is focused on his Messiah. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. So it's like the Tower of Babel, it's this concerted collective effort to say no thank you to God and his will and specifically his king. Psalm 1 was composed, it's very simple, right? It's easy to memorize. If you've read it a few times, you probably can remember most of it. It's two sets of three verses. So you get to Psalm 2 and you have four sets of three verses. And it's a little bit like a play in that each set of three verses is a different voice. It's a different conversation. And by the way, I hope you have a study sheet. So verses 1 through 3, it sort of lays out what's going on, but then man speaks to heaven, verses 1 through 3. Verses 4 through 6, God replies to what man is saying, what he's articulating. Verses 7 through 9, the Messiah speaks, God's anointed king, the one that's being rejected. And then verses 10 through 12, it's the conclusion, which is primarily a warning and also a promise. And you remember we said the end of Psalm 2 is a bookend to the beginning of Psalm 1, and it's about blessing is still to be had, even in the face of this warning. Acts 4.25 attributes this song to King David, and it's an original context we have the benefit, right, of when we live and where we live and the scriptures here and Jesus has come. 
But if you were a Jew reading Psalm 2 back in the day and Jesus hadn't come, the incarnation hadn't occurred, it's assumed that this is being written about one of David's descendants when they would be enthroned as the new king. And so in its original context, it's thought this is about Israel's king and it's sort of addressed to the nations around them to take heed. This is God's man, his representative on earth. Pay attention to him. Now, of course, later... The church age, Jesus has come, the resurrection, the crucifixion, all that's occurred. When you read the New Testament, then it's clear Psalm 2 is all about ultimately Christ, as is most of the scriptures entirely anyway. Um, You'll see at least, I counted 12 references to Psalm 2 in connection with Jesus in the New Testament, and several of those are on your study sheet. So if you've got your Bible, e-version, or otherwise, join me. I'm going to take these three verses at a time a man speaking in Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3, and I'll read from the ESV. Uh, You've you got to love, this is very memorable language. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against Yahweh, and against his anointed. And we'll define this a little bit in a moment against his anointed, and this is what they're saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This, the language is graphic. The nations are raging. They're like the wind on the ocean waves. It's this, the imagery is it's tossed, it's turbulent, it's agitated, it's anything but at rest. And this is sort of the psyche, if you will, of the nations raging against God. And with all the, have you guys ever been really mad and you feel like that your anger empowers you? You know, there's this sense, the nations, they're agitated, they're angry, they're figuring things out for themselves. And God says, it's not going to amount to anything. But they're, they're in the moment, this is what they're doing, this is what they're feeling. The cooperation, verses 2 and 3, of the kings and the rulers is set against God himself and against his Messiah. You know, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, so Messiah in the Old Greek Christos and the new, they both mean the same thing, anointed. And it's a little different for anything we do today. But you remember back then, God chose the priesthood in Israel, didn't he? And he chose the high priest and he chose the kingly line. And so God not only chose a priest and a king, but when that choice was made evident, when they were ensconced in the priesthood or on the throne, that indication of God choosing them was was by pouring oil over their head. That was literally, they were anointed with oil. It was poured over their head. That was an indication they were God's choice for that role. It was also symbolic that God was empowering them for that role. So when we say Christ, Jesus, Christ means anointed. Christ means Messiah. So it's the anointed. So if we say King, Israel's king was the Messiah, chosen by God, anointed by God. The desire to throw off every means by which God may hamper their own self-determination is what they're after. God's benevolent rule to them feels like an odious weight or a suffocating effect. So, you know, if you're a parent and you love your child, you know that the rules you put in place for your kids, they're for their benefit. We know God is good and he loves us. We know that the the strictures he puts on us are for our benefit. They're they're not weights to be thrown off. They're things that protect us. But to this group, 
it, it feels like a burden that I am absolutely unwilling to bear. I'm going to get rid of this chain as soon as I can. And friends, these verses lay bare really the human heart individually and collectively. God, we don't want you. We don't want any form of your rule over us. We're getting rid of it as much as we can. Now, this tendency can be masked if you're a moral person, if you're a religious person, if you go to church on Sunday morning, you might tell yourself, just to be in that group, you might tell yourself that that's not you, that that couldn't be me because I'm moral, I'm ethical, I'm religious. And then you say, you know, yeah, think about this. Jesus came to a religious group, and what did they do? They rejected him and they crucified him. He came to, the covenant people were religious. The Jewish elders were the ones that rejected God's Messiah, along with the Romans. So we want to make sure that we don't kid ourselves that to be moral, to be ethical, or to be religious, or to sit in a church service on Sunday morning inherently means we're not part of this Christ-rejecting group. None of that means that at all. It doesn't have to mean that at all. Let me give you some examples of the way I see some of this playing out today. The human heart from the fall on is set against God. There's, until there's rebirth, that's all we've got. That's what we are. We're at odds with God. And so you'll see elements of rebellion all along. Some of these are a little bit more locked in time and history. Some of these aren't. Uh, the persecution of the Christian church around the world, friends, is the world rejecting God and his Christ. And I say this on the authority of Acts 9. When Saul of Tarsus is knocked down and Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? Saul doesn't think he's persecuting Jesus. He's persecuting Christ's church. But Jesus says to persecute his church is to persecute him. The persecution of the church around the world today is a rejection of, of God and of Christ. Sexual immorality is a rejection of God's constraints on his gift of sex. And guys, you know this, we're awash, the world's awash in unbridled sex today in a way that, that may be without historic precedent, I'm not sure. You know, if you were from the city of Corinth back in the day in which Paul wrote, if someone called you a Corinthian, they were calling you an immoral person. Corinth was so notorious for sexual immorality, it, it embarrassed the Romans. That's saying something. So I don't know if we've reinvented this ourselves or not, but, but certainly at a spectacular breadth at least, the world is awash without godly constraints on sexuality in a way that may defy other elements of history. One of the most pointed things to me about this today, about what does Psalm 2 the rejection of God in Christ. What does Psalm 2 look like today? How is that embodied in our culture today? The advance of the LGBTQ agenda and the trans agenda is about as in-your-face rejection of God in Christ as is possible. Now, I'm not picking on trans anybody or homosexuals or lesbians or anyone else particularly, but I'm bringing it up for this reason. Go back to the creation account. <clears throat> we are not self-made. And we didn't arrive and we didn't create ourselves. So go back to the creation account and what does it say? It says God created humanity in his image. And when he did it, he created us in his image, male and female. Friends, for anyone to say, 
I am who I say I am, I am what I say I am, is absolutely a fist raised in God's face. It can't be otherwise. I'm not who I say I am. I'm who God says I am. And I can mutilate my body and I can say I'm a girl now or I'm a guy now, and I'm not. I'm still what God created me. It can't be otherwise. So all of this talk, and everybody's, you know, we console everybody on all this. This is about as in your face, the rejection. This is Psalm 2, lived loud and proud in our culture today. Absolutely. The pursuit of wealth against the welfare of the poor is a rejection of God's command to love others. Guys, I am not against capitalism or the free markets. When they work, they work great. But we have wealth that's absolutely been born on the back of the poor and the impoverished. And we have wealthy people getting wealthier at the expense of others today, perhaps in ways that the world has never seen. The slaughter of the unborn around the world, the slaughter of the unborn abortion, is an assault against God himself in whose image each of those children are made. And think of that. You know, it was in Genesis 9, it was in the context of the flood when violence was permeating all across the globe. You remember, every intention of their heart was evil continually. Violence against other image bearers, that's when God cut off that world and that culture in that time with the flood. And why is that? And then after the flood, God gives capital punishment. Man didn't make this up because he said, if a man sheds man's blood... If one image bearer intentionally takes the life of another image bearer, he'll pay with his own life because the life of the image bearer is sacred and it's, it represents God. The murder of another human being is an assault against their maker, against God. It's, the, it's absolutely the spirit of Psalm 2. Every religion that doesn't name Jesus as God in flesh and the Father's anointed king is a cooperative rejection of God and of Christ. Hinduism, Taoism, Islam, Buddhism, you name it. And guys, I'm not, um, you know, we're careful when we talk this way. I'm a little excited this morning. But we're careful because you remember last week when we talked about the wicked, we included ourselves in that group, right? We don't look down our nose on anyone. You know, if God hadn't saved us, if God in Christ hadn't reached down and taken ungodly, wicked Mike and granted faith and repentance and life, I'm, I'm just with the same group. I'm just with the same group. So we want to be careful. We want to absolutely name names on the sin, but we want to make sure that along the way we're cultivating God so loved the world, sinners and wicked like us. We're not saying it's us versus them, though in some dynamics it is. But no, we're sinners among sinners saying there's a better way. And these are cooperative efforts. All these other religions are cooperative efforts. They're babbles. They're opposed to God. They're opposed to his Christ. So the spirit of Psalm 2 is alive and well today. The rage against God and Jesus, the desire and attempts to live free of all restraints God intends, that's alive and well today. Psalm, we, they've got nothing on us on Psalm 2. Because Jesus is the ultimate anointed king of Psalm 2, the rage of the world today is against Christ just as it was in his incarnation. This is from Acts 4, 24 through 28. Listen to this. The early church got it that Psalm 2 is Jesus, that Psalm 2 is all about, ultimately it's all about Christ. 
So the early church said this. This was after some initial persecution, and they get together to pray and confer. And they quote Psalm 2. They said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. Now they're saying this happened. And the rulers were gathered together. So there's that cooperative effort against Yahweh, against the Lord, and against his anointed, against his Christ. And here's the application, verse 27. For truly in this city, in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. No doubt about it. Both Herod, there's a king, Pontius Pilate, there's a ruler, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Here is God incarnate in Christ, and here is the culture, the spirit of Psalm 2 saying, we will not have you. And Jews, religious Jews, and Gentiles and the Romans alike say to God, we will not have you. Now, I lo- uh, <clears throat> different level. You got to love this. So you go back to Babel, you're right, and and men say, man, what we're doing is so impressive, and we're on our own, and this is going to work, and this is so cool. And God says, it's nothing. You know, it's a pimple on the earth. Well, here, mankind says, we are throwing off your rule. And when they're throwing off their rule, what's God doing? He's using their rebellion to bring about, this says, the predetermined plan of God. He's using their rebellion for Jesus' crucifixion so that the guilt of their sins and yours and mine will be covered because Jesus, they didn't know it, but the Messiah comes the first time as the suffering servant of Isaiah's prophecy. And so their rebellion is in fact still accomplishing God's purpose. They say we won't have you and God says, well, this is part of my plan. Your rebellion is part of my plan to provide for the salvation of the world. You're not accomplishing anything ultimately against my plan or my Messiah. The rebellion of Psalm 2 was carried out specifically against God and Christ in the rejection and crucifixion. And guys, this is a deal for us too. We want to be very careful about this again. Uh, Self-introspection on this is helpful. So I can say as a blood-bought, born-again Christian, I'm not part of that group, okay? Because now, because I'm under Messiah, and this is where this psalm concludes. I'm there. Jesus is mine. I say, absolutely, I'm glad. And I'm I'm sure that's true for most of us. I'm thrilled about that. No downside on that at all. But here's the flip side. When you and I choose to live on our own terms, when, when we know what God has said and choose to do otherwise, that's the spirit of Psalm 2. So we say, Lord, I'm going to heaven. I'm happy. That's great. And Lord, I know you've said this, but I'm going to take advantage of this over here anyway. And this is where a lot of the evangelical church is today. This is where a lot of people go to church on Sunday morning or stream online, answer the polls, and they say, I believe Jesus is God the Son. I believe he saved me from my sins, but I choose to live life on my own terms. Guys, that is Psalm 2. It's the same spirit. When I pick and choose, Lord, I'll follow you here and I won't follow you there, it's the same thing. I say, Jesus, save me. Give me a happy ending. I'm going to live life, on, I'm going to reject you as the one who tells me where I will go and where I won't, what I will and what I won't do. It's the same spirit among believers. So we need to be careful we don't kid ourselves on that. Verses 4 through 6, so man says, man says, this is what we're up to. 
We're going to throw off your chains, God. Uh, God, uh, he sits in the heavens, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. He'll terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, on one hand, so man says this is what we're after. We're throwing God off. And God's first response is laugh, laughter. The attempt is so inept and so impossible that the first response from God is simply sarcastic laughter. We need to put this in perspective. Uh, what can any, any, any person do against God if God says no? Not a thing. Not a thing. God is omnipotent. The notion that man can do anything without God's enabling and permission is ludicrous on the face of it. Here, here's a couple things. Imagine there's a grain of sand on the California ocean shore. And the grain of sand tells the ocean breaker what it may and may not do. How it will or, or will not choose to move when the breaker slams against it. Or imagine you're a speck of dust on the plains of Kansas and a tornado comes through. And you tell the tornado, I won't do what you want. That's like, really? This is going nowhere. The thought that impotent men can do anything to oppose the omnipotent God as a concept, you can't get started. So to these people, this spirit of rebellion, God, we won't have you, God's initial response is, Laughter. This is an impossibility. It's the power of God that holds this universe together, Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. We exist within God himself who occupies all space and time, Acts 17, 28. It is God who gives breath to the rebels by which they rage against God. The ragers can't rage unless God allows them to do so. Verses 5 and 6, you know, God, this suddenly changes. So you got laughter initially. You know, it's a bad sign sometimes if, if you tell somebody what you're going to do and they laugh at you. Might not be good after that. So first God laughs, but then he speaks to the Lilliputian rebels and he says, now in anger and wrath. And the imagery here is, uh, I like to think of a horse. Uh, have you ever seen a, a big horse that's really worked up? And have you seen their nostrils flare and they're standing there with all their muscles tense and they're just ready to go? Well, that's what this looks like. Now, now God doesn't have a body like you and I. Jesus is, is ensconced in the body. Jesus, but God doesn't have that. But that's the thought. The image is you're in front of a powerful being who's snorting in rage and anger and you don't stand a chance. Man tells God, we're going to do things our way, not yours. We'll follow our king, not yours. God laughs and says, it's too late. I've already chosen and installed my king. Now, guys, when you get to the incarnation, the, the synoptic gospels especially, you'll see a little bit back and forth on this. But truly, black and white, when Jesus came, he made no secret that he was the anointed king of Psalm 2. Now, Psalm 2 is not the only place the anointed king. We'll see this throughout Psalms 2. Psalm 110 is another big one. Uh, you'll see it other places in the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament as well. But when Jesus comes along, his, his public ministry starts in Luke 4. When he stands up at the podium on the Sabbath in the synagogue and it says he opens the scroll to Isaiah, 
And he reads from Isaiah 61, one of the chief messianic passages in the Old Testament. And he says, he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me. And then he sits down and he says, today this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing. He says, I am it. I'm the anointed of Psalm 2. I'm the anointed king of Isaiah. I'm it. I'm here. You see the same thing in Matthew 11. After Jesus' resurrection and ascension back to heaven and the Holy Spirit's poured out, when Peter preaches on Pentecost, this is Acts 2 verse 36, he said in part this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord, Kurios, and Christos, Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter says there's no ambiguity, Jesus is it. God has appointed, God has anointed his king, the Lord Jesus. Now we know he's not sitting on a throne in Jerusalem today. You know, in the original context, we'd be thinking about one of David's heirs sitting in Jerusalem on the throne. But we do know he's ensconced in heaven at the right hand of the Father in glory today until he comes back to the earth to put down all rebellion. And then he will sit on a throne in Jerusalem as God's anointed chosen king to rule the earth for a thousand years. Revelation 11.8 says uh, that the, the uh, kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. That's going to happen. And King Jesus will rule and reign on the earth. Think of this too. The model prayer in the gospels, you know, Lord teaches to pray. Okay, what does that look like? In the text there it says, your kingdom come... Guys, what kingdom do you think a Jew or a Messianic Jew was praying for when they said, your kingdom come? They're praying for Messiah's kingdom to come on the earth. And that kingdom and that rule is coming. There's no doubt about it. It simply hasn't taken place yet. There's one Savior who can save us from sins, and there's one king who can rule in God's name. And the important question for us is, have we found that to be true? I'll say this now so I don't forget it later. If, if you've been in Christian circles for a long time, I'd say for almost 50 years and probably two to three decades ago, this settled down a little bit, there was always this uh, conversation about um, can you be saved and not, say, uh, not live as if Jesus is Lord? So I say, I believed in Jesus, I'm saved. And then, well, is believing only enough? And theologically, this is true, we're saved by God's grace through faith. But sort of the question was coming up, lifestyle versus profession. And we'd say a couple of things. We would say on one hand, a Jesus is never less than Savior, and he's never less than King. So the question isn't about Jesus. It's only about our temporary relationship to Jesus at any point in time. If I've trusted Christ for salvation, I am his and he is mine, and nothing can break that bond. But my lifestyle towards Christ, the level of faith, the level of obedience, that varies. And guys, it varies for all of us. So the question isn't about, is Jesus, is he a Savior or is he Lord? Yes, he's both, never less than both. You know, it's just that we equivocate back and forth sometimes, don't we? That's on us. But he's not less Lord because we say Jesus saved us. He's not more Savior or less Savior because we say Jesus is our King. He's all. He's full. 
It's on us to see him, not only embrace him as savior and know we're saved forever, but also embrace him as king and say, my business is do the king's bidding. That's where we want to aim. None of us does it perfectly. Uh, look at the third set, verses 7 through 9, and notice, notice when the Messiah speaks. So man has spoken, God's replied. Now the Messiah speaks here. And notice what's uh, interesting about his response. Uh, he says, I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, the Lord said to me, you're my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron and you'll dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Did you notice when the Messiah spoke, what did he say? He just repeated what God had said to him. He says almost nothing of himself. He just says, this is what God said to me. When the Messiah speaks, he only quotes what God had said to him. I find that interesting. So the Messiah, we know the Messiah is Jesus, but Jesus is also God the Son. And in this role as Messiah, God the Son takes on our humanity, Abraham's descendant, David's descendant, but what he's taking on is delegated authority. The Messiah's the Messiah's authority comes because he was chosen and anointed by his superior. So when the Messiah speaks, he doesn't say anything original. He doesn't say, you guys wait, I'm coming. He just quotes what the Father had said to him. He, he is under authority, and that, that's why we can live under his authority so perfectly. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like as a person to be subject to God's authority if you read John's gospel, you know he would talk about all I do is what pleases the Father. I see what the Father's doing, that's what I do. That's the thought here. He's the Messiah, he's the high king, and he says, I'm taking my orders straight from Yahweh, straight from my Father. As the Father's representative, his response to those who oppose his reign is simply to repeat Yahweh's instructions. This is what's going to happen because God has said it. There's some verses on your study sheet I'm not going to follow up on related to him, his sonship. I do want to point out Acts 13 and Romans 1. So probably when this was written, the thought when God says to the anointed, you're my son, today I've begotten you. The thought is that was probably his coronation day. He's enthroned as the king and on that day God says, I've begotten you. You're my son. I claim you as the Davidic king. I claim you uniquely as my son. And there's some other ways you'll see if you follow up those references later. But particularly, this comes up in the New Testament related to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So in Acts 13, verses 32 and 33, the apostle Paul is speaking to Jews in Pisidian Antioch, and he says in part this, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, so the resurrection, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul is putting the resurrection of Jesus as if that's his coronation day. Now, he's not less Messiah before this, but I think the inference is this. Because he knew he came as the suffering servant to put away sin in his first coming, he wasn't paying particular attention to, I'm grasping the throne. Because he wasn't. He said, I'm the Messiah. He presented himself as the Messiah, knowing he'd be rejected. 
But here it is resurrection. When sin has been put away, Paul applies Psalm 2, Today you're my son, today I've begotten you, to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Because from that moment forward, it's not about putting sin away. Sin has been put away. So now, if you will, I'm the, the Messiah without any sort of downside, without any other further work to do. I'm going to be ensconced in glory with the Father in heaven, and then I'm going to come as the Father has told me and put down all rebellion on earth. See the same thing in Romans 1, 3, and 4. Paul says, concerning his son who was descended from David, had to be from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God, that's Psalm 2, in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So in the New Testament, not only is Jesus absolutely identified as the Messiah, but it's his resurrection that's uniquely tied to his being declared, declared the Son of God of Psalm 2. There's some other references there also you can look up later. Verse 9, as God's Son, as Yahweh's choice as King, Jesus has been ordained to thoroughly and finally put down all rebellion to God. This is what's coming up. Um, we're not getting into this this morning, but it, it's probably prudent to at least include this a little. Um, so that language is interesting, isn't it? So what's the Messiah going to do? Uh, he's going to take the nations, take all the earth, and he's going to break them to his rule with a rod of iron. He's going to dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Uh, can you imagine if you took a tire iron just into your kitchen, you opened up one of the shelves and you started swinging that tire iron, you know, what chance would your china, your coffee cups, anything stand, you know? It's ugly, right? It's just broken stuff everywhere. Well, that's the ease with which this says Jesus will come back and put down all rebellion. And remember, I'll read just a little bit from Revelation 19, but the scene of the second coming, and this doesn't matter if your eschatology is the rapture of the church and the second coming are one and the same, or if you say, no, there's three and a half years or there's seven years in between them, it does, that doesn't matter. The second coming pictures the armies of the world in Israel to oppose Jesus. The armies of the world. You remember the world has embraced Antichrist. This is our man, not Jesus. This guy that looks like he rose from the dead. He's our guy and he's got our armies and we're in Israel Messiah's country, and we're opposing him. So that's the thought of the second coming, and that's what you get in Revelation 19. Revelation doesn't describe the scene on the earth. It just says what Jesus is going to do. So it's a glorious passage. I won't read it all, but uh, he sees Jesus in heaven on a white horse, faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Think of the rage of God in Psalm 2. On his head are many crowns, a name written no one knows. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood because he is a warrior king on a war horse. The name by which he's called the word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth he uh, comes a sharp two-edged sword by which he strikes the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. So when Jesus returns, it's the return of Psalm 2. It's his fulfilling God's command to take up. This isn't a golden decorative scepter of a king. This is just an implement that he's going to use in war. And he's just going to smash the opposition of the rebels on earth. Just like I take a tire iron.
to a china plate. That's what's going to happen at his return, his second coming. Friends, at the end of Revelation 22, by the way, do you remember the church's prayer is, come, Lord Jesus. It's come, Lord Jesus. And, you know, we've got a couple motivations. Bill's talking about heaven this morning, Sunday school. We've got a couple motivations. You know, one, if I'm sick or life is hard on earth, or even if it's good, if I know Christ and I know enough about him to want to see him and be with him, then seeing Christ is a big deal. To see Jesus to be with him is a big deal. That's, that's a personal motivation. That's a good motivation. Absolutely. There's another one, and it's this. It's that for Jesus' benefit, not mine, I want to see him where he belongs, on the throne, ruling over the nations of the earth, bringing down his iron scepter, and saying, you will submit. I am God's anointed chosen king, and you will submit. We should want that for Christ's sake. That's his due. We want him to get his due. You know, he was humiliated and rejected. That's past. But his future is this glorious return, and we should want that for his benefit, for his sake. Along that line, too, I want to say this again. We've talked about this a little bit in Psalm 1, but I want to say this, too. When we proclaim the gospel, guys, we want to make sure that we haven't dumbed the gospel down to some sales pitch because it's not. Now, on one hand, when we talk to others about Christ, we are saying Jesus will give you abundant life, right? John 10. I've come that they might have life and they might have it abundantly. That's a great thing. That we talk to others about what they gain through repentance and faith in Christ, that's a big thing. And I'm good with that all the way home. If we fail to say anything, you have the wrath of God to escape, then I don't think we're given the full message. You know what I mean? Your house is on fire. Your city, you're living in Sodom, and the fire is coming, and you should flee for your life. You should embrace Christ because in doing so, you escape the fiery wrath of God, and that's a truth that needs to be proclaimed. Jesus absolutely gives us abundant life, and we should love that, and we should enjoin that on others, but if we don't warn them that there's wrath to flee, I'm not sure that we're telling them what we should. Acts 17 says all men today are under command to repent. That's the gospel. It's not just believe and have a lovely life. It's believed and be saved by the wrath of, from the wrath of God. Last three verses, this is the conclusion. Kings, be wise. Be warned, rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. You notice fear and joy are not opposite each other. You live in the reverence and fear of God, and in that fear you have joy. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And then listen to that final line, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the song ends on a warning and a promise. The warning, serve Yahweh by submitting to his king or face the fiery wrath of God. And the invitation is to kiss the son. Now, Depending, I don't know how, what this brings up in your mind. You know, if you go to the Middle East, even today, certainly through history, 
In some kingdoms, you know, the kings have the power of life and death, very literally, life and death. So in some uh, kingdoms, if you went to the king, you would lie on the floor face down in front of him. That was required. You showed, I get it, you have the power of life and death, I'm your subject, face down. Sometimes people would come and they would kneel, remember? Yeah, that's true too. Sometimes today, they'll give a kiss on the cheek. But have you seen movies probably where, where it's the pope or it's the king and he puts his hand out and the person comes up and they kiss the hand? That's, they're saying, you're the man, I'm not. You have authority over me and I'm showing my submission by kissing your hand. Well, that's the thought here. Psalm 2 winds down with this warning. You don't have to face the wrath of God. Kiss the son. Submit to him. Submit to the king now. And then, the end, blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's Psalm 1 again. Blessed are all. Happy are those who take refuge in the Son. So you can face the Son of God, God's chosen Messiah and King, with an iron scepter. Or you can kiss the hand, and we would say that's, that's simply faith today, right? Jesus, we get it. You're Savior and you are Lord, you are King. And we bow before you. We rejoice in you. We, we seek refuge in you. This is, by the way, one of the key themes throughout Psalms is God as our refuge. Well, ultimately, Jesus is our refuge. And it's an invitation at the end of this song to take refuge in him. And when you do, you know what you find? You don't find these constraints or heavy change. You say, man, this is so good. I'm blessed. I'm happy. I have joy. I have peace. So that last kiss the sun, guys, that's the invitation to life. It's the invitation to life instead of to wrath. Kiss the sun and live. The first two psalms in this book of songs tells us how to live happy and blessed. And I think this is supremely important for us. We don't get the benefit of the rest of this 150 songs in this book if we don't start with Psalm 1 and 2, which is there's righteous and there's wicked. And if you're among the righteous, it's by God's doing and you're drawing strength and vitality by the river of life, which is his word. You're sheltering in the sun. And therefore, when you go through the rest of the book of the songs, you can sing the songs of Zion with the Jews faithfully back in the day because you're in the right place to do so. But if we're not, it's just literature. Lovely literature at that, but it's just literature. Well, if you would, stand with me, and if you have a study sheet, hopefully you've already read this. But as you know, we're concluding with a brief prayer that comes from the song, the psalm that we've spent time in this morning. So if this represents your, your desire as well, why pray with me. Father, give us hearts to follow Jesus, our good shepherd, to the water of life in the truth of your word. Help us to consistently reject the appeals of the world so we can embrace Jesus as Savior and King. May his kingdom come soon. Amen.